What do human beings need most? It's not hard to see we have big problems, big issues. Steve has uh, made reference to some of them in his prayer just there. We have economic problems, rising living costs. We have cultural problems. We seem to be an increasingly divided society. Maybe it just feels that way, or maybe it is actually more divided than before. We certainly have identity problems, to the point where many people don't seem to know anymore what a woman is or what a man is, or if they do know, they're afraid to say that they know. And looking a bit further afield, we have war problems. Even a war quite far away from us is still, in some sense, a problem for us. We feel the fallout of it. And we could keep the list going. But we really don't need to because we all agree that humanity has problems, I think. So the question is, in the midst of our problems, what do we need most? Better education? Fairer distribution of wealth? Leveling up? Do we need stronger leaders? Russia has a strong leader, and that doesn't seem to be solving any problems, particularly. What do we need? Well, this is a church, and so you might be sitting there wishing I'd just get to the point and say, we need Jesus. We need people to believe in Jesus. But, in our passage this morning, we're going to hear about people believing in Jesus, And we're going to see that Jesus himself is not impressed by their belief. Jesus himself doesn't seem to think we just need to believe in Jesus. At least not in the way these people were believing in him. In our passage, Jesus says what human beings need most is to be born again. So turn with me to John chapter 2. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find it on page 1065, or in the larger print Bibles, just rearrange the numbers, 1650. John chapter 2. Last week we saw Jesus arrive in Jerusalem. And it was quite an explosive arrival. He came at the time of the Passover festival, the time when the city was absolutely packed. Jesus went to the temple, the heart of that religious activity, and he turned the place upside down. He drove out the merchants and the animals they were selling in the temple. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. And he gave them all a piece of his mind while he was doing it. And it would have been impossible for that incident to go unnoticed. I mean, obviously the people in the temple noticed it, but word about it would obviously have spread around the city, including word about who did it. Jesus of Nazareth would suddenly have been a name people were talking about. 
And that's where we pick up our reading this morning. We're going to read from John chapter 2, verse 23, down to chapter 3, verse 10. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? This is God's word. And it begins with some verses that ought to get our attention. Because the opening verses tell us about the believers Jesus doesn't believe in. Chapter 2, verse 23, lets us know that clearing the temple wasn't the only thing Jesus did during this visit to Jerusalem. He performed signs, plural. In this book, John is going to highlight seven of Jesus' signs. The first was the miraculous provision of wine at the wedding in Cana. The last sign will be his resurrection. Jesus pointed forward to that sign when he was clearing out the temple. And we'll see the other five signs as we go along in the book. But it's clear the seven signs John chooses to highlight for us are just a small selection of the signs Jesus performed. John says that in chapter 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. All of the signs revealed Jesus' glory. They all showed some aspect of who he is. And here, as Jesus performs signs in Jerusalem, verse 23 says, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. 
Now that last phrase might ring a bell for us. Because in the introduction to this book, John told us this. To those who believed in his name, that's Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, great. Here Jesus has only just gone public and already people are believing in his name. Which means they're becoming children of God. Right? Well, apparently Jesus doesn't think so. Verse 23 says Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Literally, he would not believe in them. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Why? John has not told us these people were only pretending to believe. He says they did believe. But Jesus is not impressed. Why not? Well, look at verse 24. Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. There's no problem with the signs Jesus is doing. They are revealing his glory. The problem is with the belief of these believers. Jesus sees them in a way that nobody else can see them. And he does not count on them as true believers. And having heard about these people as a group, now we are introduced to one of them. How do we know that Nicodemus is an example of what we've just heard about? Well, the end of verse 25 says, literally, Jesus knew what was in man. And chapter 3, verse 1 begins, literally, there was a man. When we look at Nicodemus, we are going to see the kind of believer Jesus doesn't believe in. Notice, though, his great credentials. He's not only a Pharisee who lived by strict religious standards, Nicodemus is also a member of the Jewish ruling council, a very select, elite group. We're used to thinking of the Jewish leaders as being hostile to Jesus, but here's one who isn't hostile. He's not even disrespectful to Jesus. He says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. What's the problem with this? Well, we might say Nicodemus, Nicodemus only calls Jesus a rabbi, only a teacher. Okay, but really those are terms of respect. Back in chapter 1, the first disciples called Jesus rabbi. The problem here is simply that Nicodemus imagines he is in a position to pass judgment on Jesus. He says, Jesus, sir, we have observed you and we are impressed so far. These signs you're doing have got our attention. We want you to know that. And it is our assessment that you are quite the guy, Jesus. We have concluded that God is with you. No doubt Nicodemus imagined Jesus would be pleased 
to have the endorsement of such a prominent figure. But we'll see in a moment, Jesus is not impressed at all. And if we try and sum up why Jesus is not impressed, why he doesn't believe in believers like Nicodemus, we can say the believers Jesus doesn't believe in are believers who think they can give Jesus a pass or fail mark. Just to try and explain that a little bit further, C.S. Lewis describes the attitude of this kind of person. As far as this person is concerned, man is the judge. God is in the dark. Man is quite a kindly judge. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. In the context of our passage in John's Gospel, we might say the trial may even end with man believing in Jesus. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dark. So Lewis, when he says this, is picturing a courtroom scene. The bench refers to the judge's place, and the dock is the place of the person who's on trial. Man is putting God on trial. If man thinks God has passed the test, then he will believe in God. Nicodemus shows us a sophisticated, highbrow form of that. Many of the other believers Jesus doesn't believe in are probably much less polished than Nicodemus. But they are doing the same thing. As far as they're concerned, Jesus has been putting on a good show so far. And as long as he keeps putting on a good show, as long as the signs keep coming... Well, they'll stick around. So long as Jesus keeps passing the test of impressing them, then they will believe in his name. And these kinds of believers are around today as well. So long as Jesus seems to be scratching where they itch and doing things in their situation they are happy with, things they find impressive, then they're on board with Jesus. Is that how you've been approaching him? And maybe you haven't thought about it this way, but as you think about it now, are you actually putting yourself in the position of Jesus' judge? If he produces enough evidence for you and answers enough of your questions, and does enough good stuff in your situation, you'll do him the favor of believing in him. And the church can get sucked into playing to that kind of belief. We can feel a temptation to try and sell Jesus as the guy who can smooth your way in life. He can make things happen for you. And with the right kind of big production, even today it's possible to gather a crowd of believers that way. By presenting Jesus as cool enough and useful enough that people say, hey, why not? I'll give him a go. I'll believe in Jesus. I'll give him my endorsement. 
The problem with that kind of belief is, first of all, that it's incredibly fragile. If you've ever wondered why huge churches can vanish overnight, and you wonder where all the people in those churches went, the answer is, as soon as Jesus stops delivering what they think he ought to be delivering, as soon as life gets tough, and Jesus doesn't seem to be delivering the great life they're counting on him to deliver, then their belief simply melts away. And the reason that kind of belief melts away is because it was all about a human assessment of Jesus. Making ourselves the judge of him. It was saying, in effect, go on then, Jesus. Show us what you've got for us. If it's good enough, if you perform well enough for us, will believe. And now we know Jesus doesn't believe in people who believe in him like that. So what is needed? If belief based on our assessment of Jesus isn't enough, what is it that really matters? Well, in his response to Nicodemus, Jesus explains that What matters is a supernatural renewal brought about by God himself. What's noticeable here in verse 3 is that Nicodemus has given his slightly condescending approval of Jesus, but Jesus doesn't even engage with that. He doesn't say, yes, the signs I'm doing are impressive, aren't they? I'm so glad you like them. No, Jesus changes gear completely and says in verse 3, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The kingdom of God is a subject that appears often in the Bible. Sometimes it's referring to God's sovereign rule over the whole universe. In that sense... Everyone and everything is in God's kingdom, even Satan himself. Whether they like it or not, everyone and everything is ultimately under the rule and authority of God, the king of the universe. That's one way the Bible uses the term kingdom of God. But we also find the Bible talking about the kingdom in another more restricted sense. A narrower sense. The prophets speak about a kingdom that dawns at the end of history. A time when all rebellion against God has been crushed. Every enemy has been taken care of. All sin and evil have been banished. In that sense, the kingdom of God will only be experienced by those who belong to God and have his approval. Only a limited number will enter into his eternal kingdom. And that's what Jesus is referring to here when he talks about seeing the kingdom of God. And as he listened, there would have been no doubt, I'm sure, in Nicodemus' mind that he would certainly see the kingdom of God. Not only is Nicodemus an Israelite, he's a highly religious, highly prominent Israelite. And it seems he's a genuinely upstanding Israelite, a good guy. 
Of course he'll be part of God's coming kingdom. Who could have better credentials than a man like him? And while we're at it, hasn't Nicodemus just given his endorsement of Jesus? So if Jesus has any say in who gets into that kingdom, surely Nicodemus is sitting pretty on that score too. He's given Jesus the thumbs up. It's what Nicodemus might expect. Maybe it's what you would expect too as you read this. But Jesus pulls the rug out from under that kind of thinking. He overturns it just like he overturned those tables in the temple last week. He says in verse 3, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And we need to know there's an ambiguity in Jesus' words there. The last phrase could be translated born again, or it is equally possible to translate it born from above. Your NIV Bible, if you're using an NIV, has a little footnote to verse 3 which points that out for us. So which is it? Well, almost certainly Jesus means both. He's talking about a new birth, and it's a new birth that only comes from above, from God. When Jesus says you must be born again, he almost certainly means born again from above. But Nicodemus takes it only as born again. And in verse 4 he says, possibly with a bit of a smirk on his face, How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus seems to think Jesus is talking about having a second go at life and trying to make a better job if it's second time round. How many of us think we would love a chance like that? To start over and avoid the mistakes we made the first time. But Nicodemus knows as well as we do, we don't have that chance. Who could crawl back into their mother's womb and be born a second time? You might have heard the story of Benjamin Button. It was a short story that got turned into a film probably quite a while ago. A story about a man who started old and got progressively younger as the years went by. But even he didn't get a do-over at life. When it was over, it was over. No one gets to go back to the womb and start over. But by God's grace, we can experience something even greater than a second chance at this life. We can experience supernatural transformation that makes us fit for the kingdom of God. Here in verse 5, Jesus essentially repeats the point of verse 3. But he explains it in slightly different words this time. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. In verse 3, Jesus spoke about being born again from above. 
Now he describes the same experience as being born of water and the Spirit. What does he mean? Well, before we try to answer that, just notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 7 and verse 10. In verse 7 he says, You shouldn't be surprised to hear me talking like this. You ought to expect it, Nicodemus. And in verse 10, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? In other words, Nicodemus, you of all people know the Old Testament scriptures. You of all people know what they teach. You teach them to Israel for goodness sake. So you of all people should not be baffled when I talk about new birth. And what that tells us is, Jesus is not saying something new here. He's picking up on something that's already there in the Old Testament. Where in the Old Testament? Well, we could go to several places, but the main passage Jesus has in mind seems to be in the book of Ezekiel. Earlier we read that striking vision God gave Ezekiel of a vast valley full of very dry bones. But as Ezekiel watched through God's supernatural power, those dry bones took on flesh, breath entered them, and they came to life. That's Ezekiel 37. The previous chapter in Ezekiel explains the significance of that vision of new birth. In chapter 36, through Ezekiel, God says this to the scattered Israelites. And as I read this, notice the emphasis on water and the Spirit. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's God's promise. And that's what's pictured happening in the vision of dry bones coming to life then in chapter 37. And that is what Jesus means when he says here to Nicodemus, you must be born again from above. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Those are all different ways of describing or picturing the same one thing. A supernatural renewal brought about by God himself. God is the one who brings the dry bones to life. God is the one who sprinkles cleansing, purifying water on our sinful hearts. God is the one who puts a new spirit in our dead hearts. God is the one who makes us born again. Meaning not a second chance at this life, but a gift of new spiritual life. A life in fellowship with God in place of a life cut off from God. You and I simply cannot bring that about ourselves. No amount of education can make it happen. No amount of moral cleanup 
on our part, no amount of religious exertion or spiritual questing can ever bring about this new birth. Jesus is talking here about spiritual life and spiritual life can only come from the Spirit of God. Look at that in verse 6. Jesus says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. Human beings give birth to human beings, but only God, through his Holy Spirit, can give us new spiritual birth. A life connected to God is a gift that only God can give. And so do you see how Nicodemus was totally off course when he thought he could assess Jesus and see if Jesus passed the test? And do you see how we are off course when we come to Christianity with the idea we are going to put Jesus in the dock and see if he's worthy of our belief? What a laugh. At least what a laugh as far as the Bible's concerned to have that kind of attitude. Yes, the evidence is there. Jesus did perform signs and he performed them that we might believe. The New Testament invites us to examine that evidence. And yet it also tells us the starting point for every single one of us is to see ourselves as we really are. To see that in terms of spiritual life, we're lying in the valley of dry bones along with everybody else. Our only hope is not our great intellect, not our religious credentials. Our only hope is to be born again by the Spirit of God. We see Nicodemus had the best intellectual and religious credentials. And Jesus still said to him, unless you are born again from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We'll see next week, this new birth only comes through Jesus. But it does not come through the kind of belief in Jesus that stands back and decides if he passes or fails our test. We truly believe in Jesus when we admit we're dead and we look to him as our only source of life. Jesus does not need our validation or endorsement. So if you've been working on your assessment of Jesus, here's his assessment of you. You need to be born again from above. So the truth of this passage humbles us. But it also gives us great hope. Because it tells us what is totally impossible for us is possible for God. Maybe you feel how unlike Nicodemus you are. You realize you have no religious credentials. Your life has been a life of flouting God's commands. Not a life of trying to keep them. 
And as far as cleverness goes, maybe you struggle to get a handle on what the Bible says. Maybe you struggle to follow what I'm saying. But can you see that knowing God, receiving his cleansing and entering into this new life we've been talking about, it's not about how much you understand. It's cleansing a new life that God gives you. We said a moment ago, it's new life that comes through Jesus. And believing in Jesus is not a matter of being smart enough to be his examiner. It's about looking to him in desperation. Because you know you're lost without him. That's a very different kind of belief from the kind that looks at Jesus and says, go on, impress me then. Do something spectacular and I'll give you marks out of ten. If you and I insist on approaching Jesus that way, we will not receive this new birth we've been talking about. One last thing to notice in this passage. Spiritual life produces change that can be seen. In verse 8, Jesus says to Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus says our ability to predict the activity of the wind is limited. Even today, when it's much better than it used to be, our ability in that department is still not perfect. So Jesus' illustration still stands today. We cannot always tell what the wind is going to do, and yet all of us can see the effects of the wind. We can hear it, we can feel it in our hair, we can see what it does when it blows on the grass and the trees. And in a similar way, Jesus says, we cannot fully understand the activity of God's Holy Spirit, We certainly can't control him, but we can see the effects of God's Holy Spirit. When he has brought new spiritual life to men and women, we can see the results. We can see it in the changed direction of that person's life. Now, some winds are stronger than others, of course. The effects of the wind are easier to see in some situations than others. We can say that about the work of the Spirit too. Sometimes the effects in a person's life are dramatic, sometimes less dramatic. But the point is where God's Holy Spirit is at work, when a man, woman, or child has been born again, there will be change. And it will be lasting change. That is not true of the kind of belief in Jesus we started with this morning. Later in John's Gospel, we read that many of those believers turned back and no longer followed Jesus. Why? Was it because the new birth had worn off? 
No, it was because they'd never been born again. Their belief in Jesus was tied to how well they thought Jesus was performing. If in their assessment there was a dip in Jesus' performance, then they didn't believe anymore. What does that mean for us? Well, we've seen what it means for us as individuals. It means we need to drop our attempts to give Jesus a pass or feel mark. Instead, we need to pay attention to his assessment of us. His insistence that we need to be born again. But if we go on now to ask, what does this mean for us as a church? Surely it means this. If we want to see lives truly transformed, if we want to see men and women not just interested in Jesus, but reborn by God's Holy Spirit, then we will pray. We will pray with urgency and we will pray with consistency. Because we understand making an impact in our community and our families and our workplace does not ultimately depend on our clear and compelling presentation. It doesn't depend on our persuasive powers or our clever answers. It doesn't depend on our cracking personalities. It doesn't depend on the ambience of our church services and our outreach events. Making an impact depends on supernatural renewal brought about by God himself. So if we want to see lives truly transformed by new birth from above, then we will pray. We'll pray at home and we will join together to pray here. Even when it's cold and rainy and we prefer to stay at home. We'll join together to pray even when it's sunny and warm and we'd prefer to sit in the garden. We'll join together to pray because we understand men and women need not reformation, they need transformation. They need new birth brought about by God the Holy Spirit. So let's commit to be a church that prays. Because we want to see dry bones live. We want to see spiritually dead men, women, and children, not just examining Christianity, but receiving new birth from above. Our last song is a song for those who know they are dead without Jesus. It's for men and women who have moved from assessing Jesus and thinking they're the judge of Jesus to trusting in Jesus as their only hope in life and death. We learned this song last Sunday night, but it might be helpful if the musicians just sing the first verse in the chorus and then we'll join in again from the start. Christ, our hope in life and death. Oh, in life and 
To meet the Lord. 
May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.